Good evening. I trust you all had a nice Mother's Day. We took, uh, we took Mama Lauren and Mama Jean out for lunch today. Didn't know it, but it was a, uh, it was a Mother's Day brunch, buffet, about a, mile, about a mile long. I thought I was gonna order a nice you know, sandwich or something, but no, I, I made myself sick. But uh, I know that the ladies, the mothers, had a good time there. They got lovely uh, gifts and cards and expressions of love and gratitude. And, you know, you might not all, you know, I was going to ask you, we got any, we've got great-grandmothers here. How many great-grandmothers do we have here? Great-grandmothers. Do we have any great-great-grandmothers? You're, you're getting close. That's right. You've got great great-grandchildren that are, no you don't, <laughs> no you don't. Okay, uh, mothers, how many of your mothers, raise your hand, raise your hand if you're mothers. You're not very proud, are you? <laughs> you're, not, you're not very proud. How many of you are mothers of five children or more? Five or more? Jean, you're the only one with five? Yeah, five. Gene wins. Boy, there were, there were times when I'd go to 10 and hands would still go up uh, because Marta and, uh, Marta and Peter have what, 11 or 12? They have 11 or 12. So anyway, Gene wins that one. Uh, who has the best children? Raise your hands. Best children. All right, of you children, who has the best mom? Justin, that was very nice what you said this morning. And your mother is a good one. My children's mother is by far the best, but <laughs> your mother is a good one and maybe the best for you. All right, enough of that silliness. Happy Mother's Day to all mothers, grandmothers, mothers-to-be. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I started on Sunday morning, and I, I wanted to look a little bit at, uh, at the Lord's Supper what we call the, the Lord's Supper. It's, it's the meeting which we use, uh, which we enjoy the privilege of obeying the Lord in remembering his death and showing it forth for another year. No, we gonna, we're, we're gonna show it forth, how long? Till he come. Till he come. We may change our programs over the years. We may have an adult Sunday school class for a several year period, then we might cancel it. We might have youth programs that last for a while and then maybe they, they become outmoded and we try a new program. But there is something that we're, ne we're never going to tire of and we're never going to change and we're never going to, we're never gonna deny. And that's because the Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, he asked us a simple request. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, it's recorded that when the Lord Jesus took his disciples into that upper room, he said to them, with desire, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover. And then his next words were very poignant, before I suffer. I desire to eat this Passover before I suffer. And while all of Israel 
was at least in form because we know that the bulk of Israel was far, far from the Lord. Behind that veil of the temple, there was a void, wasn't there? Where once was the very presence of God, witnessed by the Shekinah glory, there was a void. There was no ark, there was no glory. And the people were worshiping, perhaps in truth, but not in spirit. And the Lord Jesus, what's his great desire? What did he tell his disciples when they scorned the Samaritans? It is my desire that the day comes and now is where, where worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And you know those poor Samaritans, far from Jerusalem, far from the temple, they worshiped in spirit, didn't they? But on Mount Gerizim, that was not where they, the Lord asked them to, to worship. It was in Jerusalem. Yet those that worshipped in Jerusalem, they had the temple, but they didn't have the truth, did they? They'd forsaken the God of Israel. They had turned to idols. And even if they weren't idols like unto Baal from days previous, as witnessed by the courtyard of the temple and what was going on there when the Lord had to purge the temple, that the truth had left Israel. And the Lord Jesus called out to the priests and to the Pharisees, the very leaders of Israel, that they were like empty tombs. Beautiful white on the outside, but inside corruption. And, is it, and it was at this time that the peoples of Israel had gathered to Jerusalem. You know, the Passover itself is a beautiful picture that the Lord's table builds upon. It's actually the fruition of that type that's the Passover. When we read this story in, Gen in uh, Exodus, we read the instruction of Moses to the people, and Moses says to the people, take the blood. Thou shalt take the blood and sprinkle it on the doorposts. And thou shalt eat the flesh of the lamb. We see the blood and we see the flesh. And we know that salvation came through that. Salvation of their very bodies and souls that night and deliverance of the nation that next morning. And so the Passover was to be remembered for how long? It was to be a memorial for how long? A thousand years? It was to be a memorial forever of the provision and the power of the Lord and how he provided an escape for them through the blood, through the blood. And when I, when I teach the story of the Passover to the children, I try not to omit that the doorpost, the lintel, the doorpost and the lintel are a beautiful picture of the cross, aren't they? And when you see the blood on the doorpost, it's, it speaks of the blood that came from the Lord's head. And when you see the, lint, the doorpost on the right and the left, it speaks of the blood that came from his hands. And it was into that wood, those wooden doorposts and that lintel, that the blood was applied. And safe within that doorway, safe within the blood, the people... More secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. And no, no more secure could anyone be than within their home, 
when the blood was applied. And so in this beautiful picture and in others in the, in the Old Testament, we see that the blood and the flesh are for a memorial. And so that that very night where the Lord Jesus was betrayed, thousands and thousands of lambs were slain, weren't they? I would think that perhaps the Brook Kidron ran red that night as each one cleaned the implements and cleaned their hands and the water washed away. And the blood was spilt. And the people were obeying as they did it. And yet the Lord Jesus that very night, that Passover night. You know, it's so interesting that the very night, you know, Passover begins at sunset, doesn't it? And it runs through a 24-hour period into the next day. So it was truly on Passover day that the Lord Jesus became that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He became the Paschal Lamb once and for all. And in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews goes into detail and explains the beauty of that sacrifice once and for all. How the Lord Jesus brought us into the very presence of God through his blood. And so that, through the story of the Passover and through other stories as well, we think of Melchizedek in Genesis. Melchizedek is referred in 20 or more verses in the book of Hebrews. There must be some, uh, something impressive and important about it. The story of Melchizedek is a simple one, isn't it? Abraham takes his band of men, and his purpose is to go north and rescue his nephew Lot and his people from the kings that had, uh, that had stolen them and taken them away. Abraham goes up there in faith and in the power of the Lord and slays the armies of the five kings. And back he comes with Lot and with all the other peoples. The peoples, what was Lot's city at that time? Where was Lot living? The cities of the plain, Sodom. And back with him came a great group of people from Sodom as well. And on their way back, as they came up and saw that hill up ahead, it's interesting to think that this Jebusite city, this Canaanite city, held in it a king who was called the king of Salem the king of peace. His name was Melchizedek. And the Bible describes him as the priest of the most high God. Interesting that this Canaanite, this not a Semite, not a, not a son of Shem, but a son of Ham, one to whom the word of God was not entrusted, one into whom his people were not gifted to be the chosen, this man, this Gentile, this king had through the revelation of the Holy Spirit come to the knowledge of the true and living God. 
And he became a priest to the Most High God. Can you imagine that his people, these Canaanites, these people that we might consider heathens, may have been the most God-fearing people in the world at that time because of the influence of their king? Kings generally, you know, Machiavelli says that power corrupts. And it's hard to find a king. You look, I was recently reading a history of the kings of England. What a rotten bunch. Murderers, backstabbers, kinslayers. Most of them got the crown from killing a brother or a father or a cousin. Power is a corrupting force. And yet here the most powerful man in the city of Salem had bowed the knee to the Most High God. And at his urging had gone out the gates of the city and had met Abram. And had called unto Abram and had brought out with him what? What did he bring out with him? Not the fatted calf. Not mutton. He brought out with him bread and wine. And there with the bread and wine, at the urging of the Holy Spirit, he caused Abram to bless to bless El Elyon, the Most High God. And he called on God to bless Abram in the name of him that possesses heaven and earth. And there the blessing is given and the blessing is received. And what do they have? You've got the symbols of the bread and the wine. Simple fare. A king could have provided greater than that. But the Lord inspired this priest of the Most High, to bring out bread and wine. And it is for that reason that he's remembered. The Lord prepared Melchizedek from the time of his childhood, yet we only read of him for about a half a dozen verses in Genesis and a few verses in, in Hebrew. But it's made clear in both Genesis and in Hebrews that the greater of the two was not Abram, it was Melchizedek. And Melchizedek bowed before uh, Abram bowed before Melchizedek and gave tithes of all that he had brought from the north. And Abraham left there feeling blessed, knowing that he was blessed by God. And that this man of God had been used to bless him. And you think he from that day forward sat down to a simple, simple meal of bread and wine and, and didn't recall that day when he received that, that blessing? A few weeks ago, we, we went into the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is another beautiful story. David, after years of subduing the kingdom, subduing the land, bringing the land finally from war, from rebellion, to a time of peace, his first desire after consolidating the kingdom, he asked his servants, are there any left yet? of the children of Saul, my enemy, that I might show kindness to them? And one of his servants says, well, not only is there a descendant of Saul, he's, he's the son of the one you love. Because Jonathan has a son. He's out, out in the boonies. He's out in the wilderness in the land of no pasture. And he, and, he, and he says, go get him and bring him to me. And he says, by the way, his name's Mephibosheth. 
and he's lame on both his feet. I don't know about uh, Benjaminites, but you know, a Levite could not serve if he was lame. A Levite could not do that duty that in his course was required of him. And so we see a picture of, in Mephibosheth of someone who is unworthy, someone who is imperfect, someone who is broken. The grandson of David's enemy. And yet David sends, fetches him, brings him before David. And David thought back about those days that he spent with Jonathan and the promises that he made to Jonathan. Because Jonathan knew David is the anointed of God. That crown is not for me. That throne is not for me. It's for David. Says David. When the time comes, if I fall, will you show kindness to my house for my sake? And the day comes when David meets Mephibosheth for the first time. And I like to think that David saw something in this boy, lame on both his feet, as he's carried before him. He sees something in his eye or something in his, in his face that reminds him of the true love of his life that was Jonathan. He sees something of Jonathan in Mephibosheth. And I like to think that David came down from his throne or from his royal table and went to Mephibosheth and picked him up. and carried him to the table and said, from now on, you don't just have a place in my palace. You have a seat at my table. And what a beautiful picture that is of you and I, unworthy, broken, sons of disobedience, but for the sake of another, one that God truly loves, We've been carried to a table that we don't belong at. We've been given a place with the princes. Because around that table were the princes of Israel, weren't they? And this broken man, Mephibosheth, this broken young man. So we see these beautiful pictures of how the Lord desires for his people to be brought to his table. We looked at a verse in Malachi that says, you have polluted my table. You have offered uh, corrupt, you've offered diseased, you've offered the, the, the lame on my altar. And the Lord refuse, refers to the altar as his table. You've brought these to my table. The people had degraded to the Point not where the priests would inspect the animals that they were without blemish, but they would take anything. They would take anything. So the people would bring the weakest of their flock, something that wouldn't bring a good price at market. Well, we'll give that to the Lord. 
Something that wouldn't pass the USDA regulations today? We'll give it to the Lord. And the Lord says, this is what you bring to my table. <coughs> so there are, there are pictures and there are types in the Old Testament that lead us to the, the truth and the beauty that is the Lord's table. That we, that we have the privilege, not as a birthright, but through the Spirit of God, we've been led to the Lord's table in a way that much of Christendom has either ignored or corrupted or neglected or minimalized, where they might celebrate the remembrance or the communion once a year, twice a year, quarterly, monthly. We reviewed how there were only a few mentions in the New Testament of the remembrance of the Lord's Supper or the breaking of bread. Uh, one was when Paul was on his way to Troas and he delayed his, his uh, taking of ship because he had just missed the breaking of bread with the local assembly there. And it says he waited six more days until the following Lord's Day, first day of the week, that he could break bread with the Lord's people there in the local assembly. So the picture there is one New Testament church celebrated it on the first day of the month, but that it was done weekly, or so it would appear. But more importantly was that he had the opportunity to break bread upon that ship as he took passage to his next port with his traveling companions. But he didn't think that that was appropriate. That the place for the, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup in remembrance of the Lord Jesus was to be done in the place of the local assembly. Obviously, uh, we have and we can take exception to that, but apostolic example is that it is the communal worship of the Lord Jesus. Each of us in our own closet, at the foot of our own bed, in our own sofas at home, we can enter the very presence of the Most High, can't we? Why do we have the right? Why do we have the right? Because the Lord Jesus has clothed us in his righteousness. The Holy Spirit draws us to him. And yet it is the will of God that here on earth, here in Claremont, here in the greater Pomona Valley, that the brothers and sisters who share this like desire would meet together. And why would that be? Is, is, God a, is God a greedy God? That he would prefer quantity to quality? No. But I'll tell you what. You all know. There's nothing like it. When like-minded brothers and sisters gather at the feet of the Lord before the altar of incense and with one mind and one accord, with one focus, lift up the Lord Jesus, there's nothing like it. And so we see in the scriptures examples also 
of how when the Lord's people gather together for a common purpose that there's power in it. I think of things, examples in the scripture, we can't go through all of them, but uh, one of the brothers just a couple weeks ago mentioned, uh, was speaking a little bit on the dedication of the temple. When Solomon had fulfilled the life's desire of his father David, his father David's one great desire was not to sit on the throne of Israel. It was not to conquer the peoples. It was not to conquer his enemies. It was not to exact vengeance. What was his great desire? Was that he build a house to the Lord. And David spent the last half of his life, or the last third of his life, <coughs> designing and preparing and commissioning perhaps the greatest structure that has ever been built as far as, as far as opulent wealth. There have been bigger structures built, taller structures, vaster structures. But David's desire was to build a home for the Lord that was of the best that the people could offer. And so the list, the list in the book of uh, Second Chronicles goes into the vast amount of wealth. And the peoples, not only of Israel, but of Lebanon and of Syria and of the, the neighboring tribes that were commissioned to prepare this. So that when David died, Solomon was allowed to begin the construction of this temple. And if you think of the temple itself, the temple building was really about the size of this chapel, but taller. But what was more impressive or equally as impressive were the courtyards and the surrounding buildings and the storehouses, the furniture. I pulled up some pictures for the kids that showed the, uh, the, the uh, laver, what do they call it, the brazen sea. It was like a giant swimming pool on the backs of 12 oxen, all in brass. And from it, it flowed, and they would fill the small pots for the cleansing of the sacrifices and the cleansing of the priests. The brazen altar was a thing to behold in height and breadth, and that fire burned continually. Can you imagine a visitor coming to Jerusalem? The first sight that would strike him on that hill would be the gleaming, gleaming white temple. And in front of it, there would be smoke ascending, night and day. But then we forget that after the temple was dedicated, that night and day, the Shekinah glory was above that temple. The cloud by day and the fire by night. Can you imagine a night traveler coming to Jerusalem and seeing that? You know, we talk about the seven wonders of the ancient world. This would have topped the list had we seen it. Anyway, the story goes of the dedication of the Temple of Solomon. Uh, and it's, uh, it's in 2 Chronicles. We can just look at a couple verses there. 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 5. And verse 13, it says, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers 
were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, He is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Verse 14, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And then the next chapter, we have the sermon and the prayer of Solomon. And then in chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And here we have the dedication of the temple, another picture of the assembly the congregation of Israel gathered together with one thought and one accord, one voice, one purpose. And it, and it says in both of the chapters that they said with one voice and they played their instruments with one song, with one sound. That God accepted this. That God was moved by this. Not that a few would do it and a few would follow by rote but that the hearts of the people were turned to him for the first time in who knows how long. And he expressed his pleasure by filling the house with a cloud and by sending a fire from heaven to ignite the altar with heavenly fire. And from then on, that Shekinah glory stood over the, the temple. What a, what, a, what a privilege it would have been to be there that day. It would have been a privilege without all the fireworks just to join in a congregation with one voice praising the Lord. Can you imagine that? Have you ever been in a huge congregation that is singing a hymn to the Lord? What a great feeling that is. That you know that there's no dissent there, but that all eyes and all hearts and all minds are focused on the Lord Jesus and singing his praises. To be there that day, what what a wonder that must have been. And you wouldn't be looking around seeing what everybody's wearing. You wouldn't be looking around seeing who's that singing off key. Your eye would be on the altar until that cloud rolled in, until the fire of heaven came and says, everyone bowed themselves with their faces to the ground and worshipped. Every one of them. And that's what we do on a Sunday morning. Every one of us comes. If you don't have the purpose that everyone else has, I'd really rather you stayed at home. But if you desire to participate in something that is not unlike the dedication of the temple, 
We're not dedicating a building here. We're remembering a man. We're remembering our Savior. So on that, we have another beautiful picture. You know, in Revelation chapter 4, 5, and 8, it speaks about that heavenly host surrounding the throne, doesn't it? And they're all in one accord. And that heavenly host that we read about is anticipatory, isn't it? John was taken, and I believe bodily, into the future, into the very throne room of heaven. And he says, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. I think he was in the body. I think the Lord took him there. And if he looked closely, he may have seen himself in the audience because he'd already died and gone to heaven. And there he saw. He saw the throne of the Lamb. And he saw the elders and he saw the beasts. And he heard the voices of cherubim and seraphim. Sounds he had never heard. Sounds you and I have never heard. Sounds we will hear one day. And what do they do continually, continually? They say, holy, holy, holy. And those beautiful voices sing the praises of their creator. And every heart, in every accord, those elders and the people, the redeemed, the saints, you and I. And you know, when I think about that time that John saw and we will see, I don't think of myself at row 853,212 seat E. I picture myself at the feet of the Lord. You know, when I was young, I always thought, well, I, I can live in obscurity in heaven because I'll be one of millions. But you know, our God is an omnipotent God, isn't he? Our God is an omniscient God, isn't he? And our God is an omnipresent God. And I've been meditating lately on the perfections of God in those, re in those respects, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we truly believe that the Lord is omnipresent, then my head will be on his breast. At the same time, your head will be on his breast. My head will be at his feet while your head is at his feet. And if the Lord sends me to some distant galaxy on an errand, I will not have left his side because he'll be there with me. When I think of loved ones that have gone ahead, you know, we, we, we uh, remember people at memorial services at their funerals. I don't think of them as having just joined the host. I think of them as being in the bosom of the Savior. And they are. We're not in the back row. We're at his side. We're holding his hand. It's a beautiful thing. This may end up being a three-part. Other examples that we have, we'll try to finish this quickly. Another brother uh, on, uh, on Easter Sunday, it was Rick, he was speaking about those disciples 
on the road to Emmaus. Oh, those disciples, Cleopas and his companion. And the Lord came up and walked with them. And they walked those miles together, un unknown to them who this was. And he says, oh, thou slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have, have told you. And he went on to expound the scriptures. And from the law through the prophets, can you imagine the conversation with the Lord? And these were faithful believers. These were people of the book. These were people that knew their Bible. But the Lord opened scriptures to them that perhaps had never come to their mind. And he tied together Genesis and Exodus and the law with the stories of David, with the prophecies. We'd heard this morning of that prophecy that there would be no seed come from Jehoiakim. And he put these together. And you can just imagine the wheels turning in their minds. Saying, you know, these are all beautiful points. These are great points. And when they got to Emmaus, Jesus made as if he would have continued on. And they compelled him to come into the house. And he sat down to meet with them. And it says, and the Lord took the bread. And he broke the bread. And their eyes were opened. And then Jesus departed from them. Simple verse, but the truth is that in the breaking of bread, the Lord Jesus is revealed to us. Brothers, sisters, have you ever got a better picture of your Savior than when you're remembering him? You may have gone to Bible school. You may, have, you may have been studying all your life. But I'll tell you, when I sit here and the Holy Spirit is moving, I have seen things of my Savior. I have felt his love more than at any other time. It's not magic. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that incense Revelation tells us, Psalm tells us, that that incense that ascends to the Lord is what? It's the prayers of the saints. And it is the Lord that heaps that incense upon it and sweetens the fragrance. And how sweet it is when the Holy Spirit takes the feeble words, the feeble thoughts of a young man, of an older man, and the congregation as one joins as he casts his words of love to the Savior. I'll tell you, one of the most beautiful pictures, and we'll, we'll just uh, look at this in closing, one of my favorite, favorite pictures in the entire scriptures is the story of that woman in the house of Simon in Luke chapter 7. If you want a picture of what worship is, you just remember this story how the Pharisee Simon invited the Lord Jesus to supper with him. And the Lord Jesus goes in there. And the Lord Jesus sits down to meet with Simon. 
and they begin a discourse. And I'm sure Simon is going to try to impress the Lord with his knowledge of the law. And then in comes a woman. And this woman is most likely a harlot because Simon says, if he knew what kind of woman this was. And in comes this woman. And Simon, in his righteous indignation, is looking around for someone to remove this miserable woman. But he watches the, the teacher. And the teacher accepts the worship of this harlot. I love it when, si- when the Lord says to Simon, the scripture says, And he looked at the woman and said to Simon. He didn't look at Simon and say to Simon. He looked at the woman and he said to Simon. So Simon, I came into your house. You offered me no water. You didn't offer to wash my feet. This woman is washing my feet with her tears. You gave me no towel. She's wiping my feet with the hair of her head. And then he gives that parable about the debtors. I love the fact, I love the fact of this, that the greatest example of selfless and pure worship in the entire scriptures does not come from a disciple, does not come from a man, doesn't come from a godly woman, but it comes from a sinful woman. And from that sinful woman comes an example of the truest and purest form of worship that we can imagine. And it's difficult for us to worship that way without the Holy Spirit putting our flesh down and raising the Lord Jesus up. And so I look forward to next Sunday. And I pray that someday my worship will be anything like that of the woman in Luke 7, where the Lord would say, thy faith hath saved thee. The Lord would accept my worship. Oh, what a, what a, what a wonder, what a feeling. So brothers and sisters, are you looking forward to next Sunday morning? You may not be looking forward to, uh, you know, one of the ministry meetings uh, three weeks from now when, when uh, I don't know, maybe Ricky's speaking. You may not be looking forward to that. But I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to meeting. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ with my brothers and sisters. And you know, the other beautiful thing about the worship that this woman showed, you know, she never opened her mouth. This woman worshiped in silence. And the Lord was pleased. Ladies, don't think for a minute that you have no place at the table. 
Your worship, here is your, here's a model of your worship right here. Brothers, the same for us. Brothers, don't, don't neglect to stand up. You know, the, the day's coming when your, last, your, your chance is over. Because once we're taken, we'll never have that opportunity again to publicly worship in this world of sin. To show forth his death. You know, from time to time we get visitors, and they, 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 they come here and they wonder. They've never been in a, certain, in a meeting like this in their lives. Are we showing forth our Lord's death? Are we showing forth, are, are, are we having the worship, uh, the, the incense of our praise and our prayers ascend? Is it noticeable to those that are far from the Lord? I know there are visitors that have come and have said, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. There's been others that have come and they just don't get it. They just don't get it. But what a privilege it is for us with one heart and one mind to add our incense to that golden altar that is before the very throne of heaven today. And there, that incense ascends to the throne of the Lamb, the Lamb for sinners slain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee so much that You have not only given us a Savior, Father, but You've given us an opportunity to remember Him weekly, to show forth His death till He come. Father, we know how much He desires that we join with Him, that we come before Him, that we take of the bread and the wine, the symbols of His body and his blood given for us. Father, what a Savior we have. We will not fail to remember him because we love him. Father, we thank thee for him in his precious name. Amen.